Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank, thank you all for coming, and uh, we'd like to. We'll uh, we'll go ahead and get started here. Got a, a good turnout today. Good program, and um, I'll start out just uh, very briefly. I'm Gene Scalia, um, chair of the Labor and Employment uh, Practice Group of the Federal Society, and uh, obviously the subject today is uh, labor and employment cases in the Supreme Court uh, this term and uh, also uh, in the 2008 term. Uh, uh, both are, are already shaping up to be really extraordinary terms. Um, I was speaking with uh, Joe Sellers uh, over at lunch, and you know he was suggesting that you know uh, it, it appears the court may have more important labor and employment cases uh, this term than it's had any year since say uh, 1989 when you had Ward's Cove and other cases. Um, uh, I spent a little time with a colleague just counting them out. There are 10 labor and employment cases in the court this term. I'm including uh, ERISA cases in that. Uh, which is more than uh, any term in the last five years at least, and I suspect more than that. In some ways more interesting, the court has already granted five cases for next term in the labor and employment area. It's only granted 23 total. So uh, more than a fifth of the cases accepted so far for next term are labor and employment cases. So, you know, obviously these are areas, labor and employment, that are uh, capturing the uh, court's attention at the moment. Um, and, you know, and, and you've got some very important cases. Uh, there are um, some that um, uh, don't particularly stand out, but there are a number that really could be precedents we're citing, uh, reading for a long time. The uh, Chamber of Commerce versus Brown case, uh, which we'll hear about, uh, I think be the first ones, one of the first ones we'll hear about, with, uh, which uh, actually Willis Goldsmith and Mike Gottesman argued uh, just a couple weeks ago. Very important case. The uh, Penn Plaza case for next term, extremely important case about um, really, uh, labor unions' role, uh, the discrimination laws, and arbitration, with the possibility that the court's Alexander v. Gardner Denville decision will be overruled after some uh, 35 years or so, um, and, and a number of other cases we'll be talking about today. Um, let me uh, quickly introduce our panelists. Uh, it really is a very uh, uh, impressive and well qualified group to address the cases we have. Uh, Mike uh, Gottesman. Uh, we'll speak first. Uh, Mike is a, a professor at uh, Georgetown Law School, teaches labor and employment law, one of the most uh, distinguished uh, labor and employment law professors in the country. Uh, he uh, uh, worked for a number of years at the Bredhoff and Kaiser firm. Uh, in addition to being a labor and employment lawyer, he's also known for his uh, Supreme Court practice. He's handled, uh, I think, more than 20 cases in the U.S. Supreme Court. He also spent time working in the Justice Department. Um, uh, Willis Goldsmith, uh, is one of the best-known management side labor and employment lawyers in the country. Uh, he uh, is uh, currently the partner in charge of Jones Day's New York office. Prior to that, he was, I think for 15 years, the uh, chair of Jones Day's uh, employment practice uh, nationwide. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Willis, uh, along with Mike, argued the Chamber of Commerce versus Brown case in the Supreme Court just a little while ago. Uh, he's also handled uh, prominent cases in the OSHA area uh, and uh, Title VII and other areas. Um, uh, Eric Dryband is now a partner at uh, Aiken Gump in town. Uh, prior to that, Eric served as general counsel to EEOC, and prior to that, he served as deputy wage hour administrator um, and spent three years working for Ken Starr. Um, just one thing about Eric that I'll mention is he is either exceedingly modest or a very poor self-promoter, uh, because the thing that's not on Eric's resume, I've told him he's got to put it on, is that he played in the NFL. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, which, you know, is, is probably far more impressive to many people in-house than anything else on your resume. Right? Um, and then uh, finally, uh, Joe Sellers is one of the best-known plaintiff-side employment lawyers in the country. He was ranked one of the top uh, 10 um, plaintiff-side employment lawyers in the country in a, in a recent survey. Um, <clears throat> he's uh, 
uh, handling or has handled um, some of the most important class actions that are recognized to many of you, including uh, uh, Beck versus Boeing in the Ninth Circuit and also the uh, Walmart versus Dukes case in the Ninth Circuit. Uh, he's also uh, played an important role in the policy debate over labor and employment law and has testified 20 or so times before uh, Senate and House committees on uh, labor and employment legislation and matters. So with that, I'm going to turn it over, I think, first to uh, Mike, uh, who will uh, uh, begin, and then we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, thank you, Gene. Uh, is this mic working? Because if it isn't, I don't know how to make it work. Um, that's why I'm a lawyer. Uh, so uh, I got assigned two cases to talk about, one of which is Chamber of Commerce versus Brown, which uh, Willis and I um, argued about two weeks ago. It was, I think, fair to say, the worst pummeling I've received since elementary school. Uh, it's unbelievable how hard those septuagenarians can hit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so you can imagine how thrilled I was that Gene invited me to relive that wonderful experience here today. Uh, happily, he did also give me this second case to talk about, which is much more important. Uh, and so I'm going to exercise the prerogative of, of talking about the Penn Plaza case first, and hopefully I'll run out of time before uh, I get a chance to talk about Chamber of Commerce v. Brown, in which case Willis can do the whole job there and explain our position as well as his. Um, Penn Plaza is going to be argued next year. The court granted cert a couple of months ago. Um, and um, as Gene uh, forecast, 30-plus uh, years of Supreme Court jurisprudence are hanging in the balance here because the quest is to overturn Gardner, Denver, and pretty much everything that's happened since then. Um, in that case, a union and an employer entered into a collective bargaining agreement with quite an unusual arbitration clause. In addition to providing for arbitration of all disputes arising out of the agreement, it expressly said that arbitration will be the only means by which employees can assert their rights under any federal uh, statute. And then it named Title VII and the Age Discrimination Act and a few others, quote, as examples. So we had here an express, an, a collective bargaining agreement that expressly provided that arbitration was the sole means by which employees could assert their statutory claims. Um, the employees in that case um, claimed that they had uh, suffered age discrimination, dutifully filed a grievance and sought arbitration uh, of both their contract claims and their ADEA claims. And the ref union refused to take the age discrimination claims to arbitration. Uh, Unions, after all, ordinarily own the grievance procedure, right? They choose what to take to arbitration and what not. And the union explained to them, he said, we'll assert your contract claims, but we're not going to assert your age discrimination claims uh, because, frankly, we and the employer jointly did the thing that you're complaining about as a violation of the Age Discrimination Act. Uh, and so they took the contract claims to arbitration. The employees lost. They then brought a lawsuit in federal court alleging age discrimination. And the employer moved to dismiss on the ground that the collective bargaining agreement said the only way these claims can be asserted is through arbitration. And the employer's first argument was that the lawsuit ought to be dismissed. They had their chance in arbitration. The union chose not to go. End of case. The, the employer had a backup position that in the alternative, uh, the case should be sent to arbitration with the employees allowed to uh, litigate the case with their own lawyers, since the union was unwilling to do so. Uh, 
and they had an affidavit from the union saying that it was willing to let the employees do that, bring, litigate the case in arbitration on their own. Uh, the collective bargaining agreement didn't say that, but that's what the affidavit said. So the Supreme Court granted, the Second Circuit said this is ridiculous. Of course, the union doesn't control employees' rights. The employees can waive their right to go to court and agree to arbitrate, but the union doesn't have the right to waive their right to go to court for them. The union, yes, is the exclusive bargaining representative, but uh, it only controls those things that are the, uh, the, as to which the union is the collective exclusive bargaining representative, and individual statutory rights are not among them. Now, the court, uh, the Second Circuit said that, this court granted cert. Um, and the question is whether it's going to say that unions can make this decision for employees, that all of their claims will be subject only to arbitration. Um, now, the court, of course, in the Gilmer case, held that an employee in a non-union context uh, can agree with the employer to arbitrate any statutory claims that arise, but there, of course, the employee is making that decision. Uh, now the question is, can the union make it for them? Now, as Gene said, Gardner-Denver clearly uh, stands for the proposition that the union doesn't control the employee's statutory claim. The court there uh, said that these statutory rights are individual rights. Congress didn't give them to the union. It gave them to the employees, and it provided that the employees could bring a lawsuit. Uh, and it said that the union is not the exclusive bargaining agent for statutory claims, and therefore the union has no say over how those claims will be litigated. Uh, indeed, the court went on in Garden of Denver to note, it, to note that unions really can't be trusted in this area. The statute makes them potential defendants in these lawsuits, and to say that they're going to own the employee's rights and how those rights will be asserted would be counter-indicative. What's more, said the court, the union might be motivated to trade the employee's statutory rights for other things that it could gain in collective bargaining. After all, that's what unions ordinarily do. They try to maximize the interests of the whole bargaining unit. Uh, and sometimes you give away some rights for others. And as long as you're behaving consistently with the duty of fair representation, those choices belong to the union. But the court said, Congress didn't give the union the power to make those choices with respect to this. Um, later in the Wright case, uh, the court, uh, where a similar claim to the one that's involved here was being asserted, the court said, no, this, this collective bargaining agreement doesn't clearly provide for the arbitration of statutory claims. And so we don't have to reach the question of whether if an agreement really did expressly provide for the arbitration of statutory claims employees would be uh, no longer able to bring their claims in a court. Uh, now, we know that this court um, passionately believes that every um, civil rights claim ought to go to arbitration. Uh, they've manifested that in a series of decisions. They just think there are too many, uh, too many employment discrimination claims, and the federal courts are being clogged down with them. And so any opportunity to enforce a principle that says, if there's an agreement to arbitrate, uh, the employee will have to go there, has been uh, affirmed up until now, and there's a danger that that zeal will carry the court so far as to say that it, even if the employee hasn't agreed to arbitrate, the union can agree for them. If the court did that, as I've said, it would stand 30 years of history um, uh, on its head. 
um, it would uh, it would alter it would have to alter what the uh, National Labor Relations Board regards as mandatory subjects of bargaining because once we say that unions have the right to do this, to take this away from the employees, well then it will uh, potentially, it seems to me, be a mandatory subject of bargaining. Uh, uh, the implications were the court to hold that, it, I think, are very significant. Um, as was true in this very case, uh, unions will be tempted to agree with the employer to submit all employee statutory claims to arbitration if the employer offers them things in return. Gee, you want a wage increase? We're only willing to give you X, but we'll give you another five cents if you'll agree that all employee civil rights claims have to go to arbitration. Uh, and depending on the union's sensitivity to civil rights issues, uh, the union might think that's a good deal. Uh, and indeed, in this case, one of the points the employer makes is uh, the union got something from entering into this agreement with us. They got more benefits than they otherwise would have gotten. Um, and um, it's understandable that employers would love it if they could buy this waiver from the unions because there's lots of reasons why employers prefer arbitration to litigation. No jury trial, arbitrators much less willing to award punitive damages, etc. Um, now, the argument that the employer is making is not to worry. The union is still bound by its duty of fair representation. So if the union doesn't take the employee's claim to arbitration or if it lowballs the case so that the employee doesn't get the best representation, uh, the employee can sue and claim the union breached the duty of fair representation. Um, that doesn't sound to me like a, uh, a totally satisfactory uh, alternative, given how hard it is to win duty of fair representation claims. It might lead to an alteration in what the union's duty of fair representation is, at least as to this category of cases. Um, my prediction for what it's worth is that the court is not going to uh, go with the employers in this case, that it just is too big a stretch uh, to think that unions can manage employees' statutory individual rights, but we'll see. Uh, Gene, do I have minutes left? Do I have to talk about uh, chamber? I wouldn't use the plural. I got one minute. <laughs> so I'll tell you what the what the statute uh, involved, and then Willis can tell you why the statute is no good. So I was representing the state of California, <laughs> which enacted this statute that said employers who do business with the state can't use the state's money to finance opposition to or support of unions during organizing campaigns. Uh, and the state's position is uh, all we wanted to be was neutral. The unions don't get any money from us to support their side of uh, this thing, so why should we have to give the employers money? We want to keep hands off and be neutral with respect to this. The claim um, is that uh, this statute's preempted by the NLRA. And there are a couple of threshold questions. I'll mention them briefly, and then I'll hand this off to Willis. The first threshold question is, for, in order for this to be preempted, employer speech has to be somehow protected under the NLRA. Um, and everybody except the state in this case has argued vigorously about whether or not the employer has a machinist-like right to speech. The state took no position on this for a very simple reason. The state would violate the First Amendment if it said we won't do business with the employer because we don't like what it's saying. And the state's, so, so 
maybe the First Amendment has been incorporated into the NLRA, but whether it has or not, it's there. So the state doesn't claim that it can refuse to do business with employees. It's just saying, don't use our money. Um, and the state is relying on a whole series of cases in which the Supreme Court has said that even though people have rights, that doesn't mean the government has to subsidize those rights. It's not an infringement of those rights for the state to say, be our guest, speak all you want, just don't look to us to pay you for doing that. Um, I don't think the court is going to disagree with those principles in this case. If we lose, and certainly most observers think we are going to lose, it's, gonna, it's because, incidentally, this statute affects employers when they want to speak with their own money. Because under the statute, if the employer chooses to spend money, it has to account to the state as to why it was not using the state's money, but to show that it was using its own money, not the state's money. And it's also vulnerable to lawsuits, to key TAM actions, which means they could be brought by unions, uh, claiming that they, in fact, use the state's money to finance these activities, and they're vulnerable to treble damages under the statute if they're found to have violated. So the argument I think that the court is going to find more appealing is that this statute, uh, although at its core purpose may be legitimate, the incidental effect it's going to be have on employers who actually want to speak with their own money goes beyond what would be necessary simply to assure that the state money isn't be being spent. So Willis. Well, where do I start? Um, first of all, thanks, Gene. I, I do appreciate it, uh, the opportunity to, to be here and also to, to be with Mike and, 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 and Eric and Joe on, on this, this panel. Let, let me first actually start with Pyatt. Uh, the um, the uh, new, the case that that Mike first talked about, uh, I, I agree completely. This is a hugely important case, and for someone uh, like me who's been involved in collective bargaining uh, as well as litigation in various forums for, for many years, it, it really suggests um, uh, that the court may take a whole look at the bargaining process. Let me let me explain why the, the employer in this case. Uh, there was the Wright case, Wright v. Universal Maritime, that Mike mentioned, uh, came close to addressing the question of whether a union could waive uh, employees' individual statutory rights and said that, well, we're not really going to address it here because under the applicable standard, clear and unmistakable waiver, uh, this contract clause this uh, doesn't really reach the clear and unmistakable uh, uh, waiver threshold. The company and the union in this case uh, after Wright, sat down and said, look, we, we want to have a process whereby claims, uh, statutory claims, are resolved in arbitration. And it's important to understand who the employer is here. The employer is the real estate uh, or the realty advisory board of New York. And many of the employees who are uh, covered by the collective bargaining agreement uh, applicable uh, to the company in the union or to the companies in the union are... Uh, are low-level employees who don't have ready access to lawyers, uh, many of whom don't speak English or speak English uh, only uh, as a second language and not very well. And I think that the company and the companies and the union had uh, a, a good in, a good motive here. Let's 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 try to 
resolve these issues here. Obviously, it's advantageous to the employers. It's obviously advantageous to the union in certain respects, and it's certainly advantageous to the employees who otherwise would be pro se plaintiffs uh, in state court or before the New York City Commission on Human Rights or other places where their claims might not be too well received. So they looked at the Right for Universal Maritime case and said, well, clear and unmistakable waiver. We understand. We think what that means. So let's write a, a clause, uh, an arbitration provision, that is clear and unmistakable uh, in its language and its intent to cover these kinds of claims. And they did exactly that. Um, the clause, unlike the clause in Gardner-Denver, which didn't even address statutory claims, uh, the clause is very clear uh, about what's to be covered in arbitration. And as it operates, as Mike suggested, uh, to the extent that the union doesn't want to take a statutory claim to arbitration, it's perfectly permissible under their process uh, for the uh, employee to get a private lawyer, um, and there are you know, many sources of those, to handle the statutory claim in arbitration. So the, the companies, the buildings that are members uh, of the Realty Advisory Board and, and the union actually took a Supreme Court decision, read it carefully, said, well, okay, if this is what the law is, let's try to make our clause fit. And, and they did that. Uh, now, I, I think this is a fascinating case, not only because it addresses the, the tension, as all of the circuits have recognized since Gardner-Denver uh, and uh, really since Gilmer, the, the tension between uh, the way that the court viewed arbitration in 1974, which was uh, the Gardner-Denver decision and the way that the court viewed arbitration in 1991 in Gilmer, um, and uh, have sort of struggled with the extent to which a union uh, can waive in good faith collective bargaining these kinds of statutory rights. And in fact, um, it, it, it seems to me that the unions have as much, if not more, uh, at stake um, in this case, uh, as does uh, the uh, employer community. And I would not be surprised uh, to see the unions come in on the same side of this case uh, as the Realty Advisory Board. Um, this really does go right to the heart of collective bargaining. Uh, to be sure, employees, uh, once they join a union or once a union represents the employees in an appropriate bargaining unit, give up certain individual rights. That's a given. Uh, that's what collective representation is all about. Uh, now, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, um, obviously I have my view. I suspect others, uh, you know, Mike might have a different view. Joe might have a different view. But that's part and parcel of the process. And to, to take a, uh, an issue like this away from the parties to collective bargaining seems to me to be a fairly significant step. I won't predict how it's going to come out, but uh, I will say that um, I think it's going to be a fairly close call, and I do think that the court has to somehow or another reconcile Gardner, Denver, and, and Gilmer. And, and it, it's going to have to address uh, this notion that um, uh, you know, arbitration, really the primacy of arbitration at this point, um, you know, whether or not uh, it's subsumed by you know, what the court said 40 years ago in, in, uh, in Gilmer, which I, I don't think that they're going to say. But it, it is, I think, one of the more important cases that the court has granted cert on um, in certainly in the traditional labor area leaving aside Chamber of Commerce v. Brown for a second, in, uh, in, in many a year. So um, let, let, me, let me talk about Chamber of Commerce v. Brown. Um, and uh, you know, Mike and I, I think we agree that we're not going to re-argue the thing here. Um, <laughs> uh, certainly, neither of us, I think, really wants to do that. And I'm not going to make any kind of predictions. Um, I 
been doing this too long to make predictions about how things are going to come out that I'm involved in. I have no problem predicting how <laughs> cases are going to come out that other people are involved in. But um, ones that I'm involved in, I stay away from because I've been wrong too many times. Um, so let me, let, me, uh, let me describe the statute. Um, and by the way, one of the important federal preemption, labor law preemption things to bear in mind here is that while California's statute, its so-called neutrality statute, um, was the first such statute, uh, there are now at least 15 states that have variations on this theme. And there are a fair number of municipalities um, and other political subdivisions that also have statutes that purport to address this issue, and that is whether or not, as the Ninth Circuit put it, um, a, a state is required to subsidize uh, employer speech. Um, the, the statute uh, is, of course, anything but neutral. Um, the, the, the statute, uh, while purporting to uh, refuse to subsidize employer speech, which is, I would suggest, central uh, to the purposes of the NLRA, and there's a statutory provision, Section 8C, that addresses it. Um, uh, the California legislature was perfectly happy to subsidize a, a number of uh, uh, activities that would facilitate union organizing um, in the very same statute. So while uh, it was uh, not permissible to use any state monies to assist, promote, or deter union organizing, it was okay to use state monies to uh, grant uh, unions access to property, to um, use state monies to uh, negotiate, um, in effect, neutrality agreements, uh, and so on. So this notion of neutrality is totally absent from, from the statute. Um, you know, what, what was, I think, even more uh, on a practical level, again, important here is that the way the statute operates, there's no way to understand uh, how you would ever segregate state monies from private monies. Um, and again, I think it's important to bear in mind, as, uh, as I think I actually mentioned to the court at one point, what goes on in an organizing drive. Um, and that is it's a 24-hour a day, seven-day-a-week operation where there are all kinds of interchanges between, let's say, supervisors and employees. Um, and what it means to assist, promote, or deter union organizing in that context is really an open question. Um, by the way, this whole notion that an employer, th th this was the, uh, the fig leaf of neutrality, that, that you couldn't use state monies to promote union organization. That apparently is a huge problem in California. <laughs> and uh, you know, the state wanted to be very fair and even-handed and make sure that nobody was going to take, no employer was going to take state money and use that money to promote union organizing. Um, so uh, that, that really was the state's argument on neutrality. If you overruled Gardner Denver, you might. You're right. <laughs> well, you, even you and I might have a different view on that. <laughs> but um, that, that's certainly a possibility. Um, the, the other thing that I would point out, and it relates to what I said uh, about the number of other states uh, and uh, political subdivisions that have similar statutes. Look, labor law, uh, and we can go back 60 or 70 years, um, has been a, a province of the federal government, for better or for worse. Um, the notion that 15 or 50 states and 3,000 or more political subdivisions of one sort or another can weigh in however they want um, on questions having to do with union organizing, because that's what this statute is all about, is a staggering notion. Uh, it would mean for any employer that operates in more than one state or that operates in more than one location, because you can operate in a state and, and 
uh, you know, also operate in a county that maybe had a different statute, um, it would be virtually impossible uh, for any employer to function in that environment. Uh, moreover, there would be no federal law, uh, I think, as far as union organizing uh, and arguably anything having to do with collective bargaining if, if this were really permitted. Uh, it, it's clear to me under the two predominant strains of labor law preemption analysis, the Garmin strain and the machinist strain, that either um, the, uh, you know, this is protected speech under 8C of the Act, and you know, we can talk about how the First Amendment works into that, uh, or it's, it's conduct that was designed to be un, uh, left unregulated by machinists. Um, the, the crazy quilt problem here um, is, is, I think, uh, staggering. Further, uh, labor law preemption and the, um, the notion that, that labor law uh, is, is, is federal law, um, not only has it been around for many, many years, but it was a notion that was first advanced uh, by the unions and first uh, aggressively and correctly, I think, uh, and successfully argued by the unions. In fact, Mike, um, the, the Nash case, I was pleased to see, you had actually argued that case and prevailed. Right, yeah. uh, it was one of the ones that I relied on, which was really <laughs> kind of fun, you know? In 1864, I argued that. Well, I don't think it was 1864, but it was, an, it was it, uh, you know, it, it's also true, I think, that in our briefs make this clear that the court would have to overrule essentially four major decisions to come out uh, the wrong way. Whether the court will, from my perspective, whether the court will or it won't, you know, who knows. But uh, I think it's a, it, it's, it's a, difficult, uh, it's a difficult call uh, for the court, I think, um, you know, given the nature of the statute. And, and I think more importantly, given, as, as I've said, the crazy quilt nature of the potential downside here. Do I have any, um, how am I doing on time? Um, I think if you could maybe wrap up in the next minute or so, that'd be great. Next minute? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, maybe I should give Mike the rebuttal time. <laughs> He'll get it. All right. Okay. Um, it, you know, again, I, I, I wouldn't begin to, to, to predict how this, uh, how this is going to come out, but, uh, but I do think it is one of the more important uh, traditional labor cases that the court has granted on in, in, in many years. And, you know, to echo the theme that, that, uh, that Gene uh, started this presentation with, uh, I think it's quite extraordinary, the number of uh, labor employment cases that, that the court has granted on. In fact, they just granted on another one, a labor case, a uh, union dues case um, involving the public sector a few days ago. Um, and so there seems to be uh, a really uh, kind of limitless interest in these issues. And, and from the perspective of a practitioner in this uh, area for 35 years plus, um, it's kind of, kind of fun for a change. So. With that, okay. thanks, Willis. Eric? Uh, thanks, Gene. First of all, let me express my gratitude, Gene, to you and to the, uh, the Federalist Society generally for, for including me on this panel of such distinguished uh, practitioners and professors and so forth as, as Joe and Mike and Willis. Uh, also, I, want, I, need, I feel the need to respond to Gene's comment about my uh, football career. I have to say, were my career a little bit longer than it was, I might boast about it a bit more, but. I realized that uh, after beating my head against uh, William the Refrigerator Perry and others that uh, there was an easier way to earn a living and so I went to law school. Uh, but let me, let me say as an initial matter, I'm, here, I'm going to talk about two cases, the case, first case called Kentucky Retirement Systems versus EEOC uh, and a second case called Meacham versus Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory. And by way of disclosure, I will note that when I was general counsel of the EEOC, I argued 
the Kentucky retirement case before the pan a panel of the Sixth Circuit and also uh, worked on and participated in the, the EEOC's amicus brief in the Meacham case before the Second Circuit. Uh, so just by way of disclosure. Um, in the Kentucky retirement case, uh, which in my judgment is the more important of the two cases, the Supreme Court will consider as a general matter what age discrimination really means. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is the question presented is a challenge to Kentucky the state of Kentucky's retirement systems, but the real question uh, that underlies the, the question presented is whether or not the Age Discrimination and Employment Act uh, requires some kind of invidious stereotype or not. Uh, the Supreme Court has repeatedly said that under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, that facial discrimination, that is where there is the consideration of sex or race or some other prohibited category, is unlawful and is intentional discrimination, even if in the context, for example, of a retirement plan, uh, it is based on actuarial tables and not based on uh, invidious stereotypes. And the question presented here uh, goes to whether or not that same reasoning extends to the Age Discrimination Employment Act. Now, the state of Kentucky uh, maintains uh, a reti retirement plans for its employees, and that is what is at issue in the case. Uh, under the state of Kentucky's plan, uh, any employee who reaches the age of 55 in a hazardous position, a law enforcement position, for example, uh, is eligible for, for full, unreduced uh, retirement benefits, uh, so long as they have a certain number of years of service and so forth. Uh, but if they, are, they are, if they become disabled after uh, age 55, which is the eligibility age for uh, normal retirement, uh, they cannot receive disability retirement benefits. And this is significant because disability retirement benefits under their plan pay more money than their regular unreduced retirement plans. Um, also, uh, the Kentucky plans use uh, age as a factor in calculating uh, disability retirement benefits for those individuals who, in fact, qualify. So, in other words, if an individual is under the age of 55 and becomes disabled at, say, age 51, uh, that person uh, can receive disability retirement benefits and have an additional four years of service imputed to them, that is, the difference between age 51 and age 55, uh, and then have their retirement disability benefits calculated based on those imputed years of service. And just by way of example, if you consider this, this is a bit complicated, but just to consider three similarly situated employees, all of whom have 10 years of service but are of different ages. A 61-year-old would be completely ineligible for disability retirement plan, uh, benefits under Kentucky's plan. A 54-year-old with 10 years of service would qualify for disability retirement benefits but would have only one year of imputed service added, and then that 11 total years of actual and imputed service would be plugged into an algebraic formula for disability retirement benefits. Someone who was 45 years old would have an additional 10 years of imputed service uh, credited to them for, for a total of 20 years of, in, of actual and imputed service to be plugged into this formula. The 45-year-old would receive the most, uh, the highest monthly benefit. The 54-year-old would receive the, the middle amount, uh, and the 61-year-old would be left with the more modest uh, uh, retirement benefit uh, of, of regular or uh, service retirement. The case arose when an individual named Charles Lichtig, who was 61 years old, uh, became or claimed to be disabled. He had 17 years of service. He applied for disability retirement benefits, and the state of Kentucky sent him a letter and said, well, you're 61 years old, you're too old, and therefore you're disqualified from receiving retirement benefits. 
The EEOC brought a, uh, he filed a charge with the EEOC. The commission brought a lawsuit and sought relief for him and a class of individuals who were affected by this plan. Uh, the district court granted summary judgment for the state of Kentucky, uh, and it held that the plan was lawful under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act because uh, it did not involve any kind of stereotypes about older individuals. Rather, it was a reasonable, in the district court's opinion, uh, reasonable uh, consideration of age uh, that didn't involve stereotypes but involved uh, benefit plans and therefore, uh, you know, it was lawful according to the district court. Uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, 3-0, uh, affirmed that decision initially, a panel, uh, but, it, but, but it largely telegraphed, I think, that it did not agree with its own decision. And what's interesting about the panel decision was that it said that it felt that it was bound by Sixth Circuit precedent to go the way it did, uh, but that, in effect, it encouraged the EEOC to file a petition for rehearing, which the commission did. And of the original judges on the panel, it's the only case that I've ever seen where this happened. There were two Sixth Circuit judges on the panel and a district judge sitting by designation. And the two Sixth Circuit judges who participated in the rehearing actually flipped their vote on rehearing. And in a 10 to 4 vote, uh, the Sixth Circuit uh, reversed the district court uh, and held that the EEOC had stated a prima facie case of age discrimination, that this was facial discrimination, that the consideration of age to both to exclude older employees from disability retirement benefits and uh, to calculate their benefits at a lower, or uh, to consider their age and therefore they would re receive lower benefits uh, was, was arbitrary age discrimination for purposes of the act and therefore uh, it was stated a prima facie case of age discrimination. Uh, Chief Judge Boggs wrote a vigorous dissent uh, and, and one of the things he said was quite interesting. He said that a non-disabled 33-year-old has more years to work and live than does a non-disabled 55-year-old. Uh, this is an interesting concept in that it normally is true as an actuarial prediction, but it may or may not be true in an individual case. Um, he also said, and let, me, let me just say, in, in the Title VII context, the Supreme Court has rejected that very reasoning in the context of sex discrimination uh, when the theory has been that women ought to pay more money because they live longer uh, into, and, and they therefore will get more benefits when they retire. The court has said that's unlawful under Title VII and the EEOC and the Solicitor General take the position in the Supreme Court that the same reasoning extends to the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. One of the interesting things, though, underlying the, dissent, the dissenting point of view in the Sixth Circuit is the theory that as a general matter that uh, the older employees need disability retirement benefits less uh, than younger employees do because older people tend on, in general to have saved more money for their retirement. They tend to be closer to retirement age. They tend not to have child, you know, young children to support. Uh, and, and that's the general theme of the dissenting opinion in the on-bank case. And I recall it at oral argument when I argued the case uh, before the panel that I was being inundated with these kinds of concerns about the differences between relatively younger people and relatively older people and the need that the relatively younger have, and I, had, I finally at one point in oral argument said, well, you know, with all due respect, Your Honors, older people need money too, uh, and, and that, that is really the issue in the case. The dissenting point of view, I think, assumes that older people tend to be more affluent, they, they, they're not going to live as long, um, and they've had more years to work and accumulate assets. 
uh, for their retirement and therefore they don't have the same need for a disability retirement enhanced benefit that younger disabled and people need. Uh, now, as I say, the, the EEOC takes a different point of view in that it's the plaintiff in the case, uh, and the Solicitor General uh, and the EEOC have filed a brief, and it argues a couple of things. Uh, the, the government argues in the Supreme Court generally that this is simply facial discrimination. There's no need for some probing of invidious uh, motives or the existence of stereotypical attitudes uh, because it's evident on the face of uh, the plan, which is defined by Kentucky statutes, uh, that the, the, the state does in fact consider age that's undisputed and that its consideration of age uh, is to the detriment of older individuals and is not based on anything lawful, at least for purposes of the prohibitions of the Age Discrimination Employment Act. Importantly, though, the government also acknowledges that there is an affirmative defense that Kentucky uh, can assert when the case is remanded. That is, the, the only issue in the case is not whether uh, the plan violates the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. Rather, the issue is only whether or not the government has stated a prima facie case of age discrimination. If the Supreme Court agrees with the government, it will remand the case. At that point, uh, the issue will become whether or not Kentucky can demonstrate that, that providing these benefits to older employees is so costly that an affirmative defense under the Act applies and therefore would make lawful what otherwise would be an unlawful um, <clears throat> retirement plan. A couple of other issues uh, in this case. This is the first time the Supreme Court will consider the effect of the 1990 amendments to the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act in any meaningful sense in the context of retirement and other kinds of benefits. Uh, just to, to back up, in 1989, the Supreme Court decided uh, a case called Public Employee Retirement System versus Betts, and in that case, Miss Betts uh, was disqualified uh, from disability retirement benefits because of her age under an Ohio plan, and as a result, her monthly benefit was lower than it would have been had she qualified for disability retirement. Uh, and Congress then changed or amended the Age Discrimination Employment Act uh, in order to, in effect, overrule uh, the Betts decision. But what's interesting is that even the majority in the Betts case said that Ohio's plan appeared on its face to be facially discriminatory, and then the question became for Congress whether or not an affirmative defense applied. Uh, and, the, and Congress then changed the statute in order to broaden the scope of liability to make the affirmative defense of demonstrating this kind of cost imperative uh, more difficult. Uh, also, I think the case presents some interesting questions uh, of deference to the EEOC, it, both its regulatory uh, interpretation of the act, which clearly says this is unlawful in terms of, at least as a prima facie case, uh, and also, um, the Department of Labor has taken the same position in 1979, uh, or, um, prior to 1979, when it enforced um, the Age Discrimination Employment Act. I have a few minutes left that I'll touch briefly on Meacham versus Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory. This, is, this case involves a challenge to uh, a reduction in force that the defendant, Knowles Atomic Power Laboratory, uh, did when it, in effect, fired 31 people in 1996. And in, in that case, uh, there were, managers were told, uh, in effect, rank your employees for, for performance, flexibility, and criticality uh, of, the, of their skills, whatever that means. And as a result, they did that. They laid off 30 people over the age of 40, one person under the age of 40. The 30 people brought a lawsuit. They prevailed at trial. Uh, and, and the question is interesting. The, the question is, what is the burden of proof for an, what the EEOC believes is an affirmative defense to demonstrate a reasonable factor other than age under the Act. 
2005, the Supreme Court said the scope of liability for disparate impact age discrimination is quite narrow. This case presents the first ch uh, challenge to exactly what they meant in the Smith case. Um, it, to me, it's, a, it's an interesting issue, but what's more interesting is that they, in fact, declined to grant cert uh, on a question uh, about uh, whether or not or what is the proper role uh, for subjective decision-making in class cases that I know Joe Sellers has quite an interest in, given that he represents the plaintiffs in the largest employment discrimination case in world history. Um, also, just as an aside to wrap up there, in the EEOC itself just this week uh, issued a regulation uh, that says the burden of proof is on the employer to demonstrate a reasonable factor other than age, which has been consistent with the EEOC's longstanding guidance, but it'll be very interesting to see whether the Supreme Court agrees with the Commission or not. I do not believe, as I say, that the Meacham case is particularly significant because it involves, in my judgment, a quite narrow question of the burden of proof on a on what the court has already said is a very narrow scope of liability for employers. Uh, but it will be interesting to see what they do and to see whether they agree with the commission or not. Eric, thanks a lot. And uh, Joe, uh, you'll wrap up. And uh, feel free to talk about any of the other cases we talked about as well as I think you may talk a bit about the retaliation cases. Uh, thanks, Gene. And uh, I really am looking forward to this discussion. I uh, don't have the opportunity to, to have conversations with uh, folks on the other side of the V very often outside of the courtroom. So I'm uh, looking forward to that and looking forward to persuading you of uh, my point of view. Um, the two uh, cases I want to speak to um, both deal with retaliation protections. Uh, and I think it's noteworthy just to begin with that there are two cases pending before the court in the same term involving protections against uh, retaliation. Uh, obviously, retaliation is an important issue and the, the belief that people may be subject to retaliation goes to the heart of the integrity of the complaint process. So it's not to say these are issues that are unimportant. Uh, and of course, retaliation charges, um, I think are now rank as the second largest number of charges filed with the commission. So it's uh, certainly a phenomena that many people believe is, is uh, uh, widespread. Um, if there's any uh, case on which, uh, which to uh, focus to uh, persuade us that the court is very deliberate about its attention devoted to the labor and employment area, uh, I would say it's the Crawford versus Metropolitan Government of, Na National, of Nashville case. That case, uh, uh, the case under review is an unpublished Sixth Circuit case at which the opinion, the decision is issued per curiam and where there appears to be virtually no conflicts between the circuits on the issues that are presented. Indeed, the Solicitor General which filed a brief at the court's request uh, in support of uh, the, the plaintiff's side, uh, devoted several pages in the brief to acknowledging that there appears to be no significant circuit conflict and ordinarily we don't endorse review of cases that are unpublished and uh, the like, and then explains why this is nonetheless a case, an issue, this is an issue of singular importance. But that's an extraordinary, I don't know, I can recall a case where the court took up a case uh, quite of that uh, posture. Uh, and so uh, either it's very important or they're very interested in a lot of employment issues. Uh, the, the case arose from a, a, a woman claim, uh, Ms. Crawford, who was fired uh, after she complained uh, or after she participated in an internal investigation uh, in which sexual harassment was alleged by a coworker against a manager. 
and uh, she and several others were interviewed as to whether there was evidence of uh, sexual harassment. She herself claimed to have been the subject of it, and shortly after that was fired and claimed the grounds that were asserted were uh, pretextual. Uh, this arose on a summary judgment uh, determination, so we haven't had much of a sense yet as to what the merits are of the claim. Um, the uh, Sixth Circuit uh, concluded that, uh, that, her, that her participation in the employer's informal investigation neither qualified for protection under the opposition clause or the participation clause of Title VII. The opposition clause, of course, protects those who oppose uh, discrimination that's covered by uh, Title VII, and uh, the participation clause protects those who participate either by filing their own charge or complaint or by assisting others uh, in pursuing claims that are cognizable under Title VII. Um, the court uh, was quite dismissive uh, of, the, of both grounds, actually, uh, asserted. With respect to the opposition uh, uh, clause uh, uh, protection, the court said that the opposition has to be overt uh, in order to qualify and that the kind of evidence of somebody being uh, engaged in overt opposition would be things such as initiating or instigating a complaint uh, of, of discrimination. Uh, they cited, court cited not one case for that standard by the way, and with respect to participation, there is actually a fairly significant body of case law, uh, published cases in fact, uh, that uh, the um, participation requires uh, that the employee have participated in some proceeding that is a legal proceeding recognized by Title VII, that is either filed a charge or participated in an investigation following uh, the filing of a charge or filing, uh, following a complaint in court or proceeding before a state administrative agency. Um, so there is some authority for that proposition. Um, there has been uh, no argument uh, has occurred yet in this case. I think there's some significant arguments that may be made as to why uh, the Sixth Circuit is wrong, um, beginning with just simply the uh, a, a case uh, a term ago uh, decided by in the Burlington Northern against White case where the court went out of its way to give a very expansive and very practical interpretation to the scope of protection uh, against retaliation using a, a standard that it was uh, very really, really focused on what would deter a reasonable employee from pursuing a claim of discrimination uh, rather than abandoning really the bright line rules that a uh, number had, had advanced. Um, second, uh, the Title VII language uh, which provides protection for those who oppose discrimination makes no mention of uh, it being overt or anything of the sort. Uh, she certainly um, can be characterized as having opposed the discrimination even if she didn't initiate the complaint. Uh, she was quite clear in her deposition that she had explained that this was offensive and very troubled by the conduct that she was challenging. Um, the difficulty with adopting that as the basis to protect her uh, uh, claim is that that might cause us to distinguish between those who have participated in an informal investigation and uh, expressed a view that was uh, uh, con uh, condemning the alleged discrimination and those who participated who were uh, more equivocal in their position. And I can't imagine the court is going to 
favor a standard that uh, distinguishes on the, on the basis of protection on the basis of uh, the content of the statements made by the employees participating in the investigation. So that remains to be seen as to how manageable that is. Um, there's also an argument as to why uh, the uh, uh, participation in an internal investigation qualifies for protection under the participation clause. Uh, we all recall that several years ago, um, the court uh, decided the cases, the Farragher and Ellerth cases, where uh, really out of uh, a judicial creation rather than interpret, purporting to interpret a statute, the court fashioned a standard for uh, determining when employers may be held vicariously liable for the sexual harassment of uh, lower-level managers who don't engage in any kind of tangible employment action. And the court uh, 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 said that, among other things, that employer who engages in a, a prompt and effective investigation and then uh, following that takes effectively prompt and effective action may be absolved of vicarious liability. Um, certainly, uh, workers are not going to participate in a internal investigation if they're not protected against reprisal. So it might be argued that, that, that this uh, participation follows from the responsibility placed on employers by the court pursuant to Title VII uh, to uh, conduct prompt and, and effective investigations. Uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I might add, however, that the um, um, uh, one, one argument against that is that to the extent the court uh, is inclined to defer to the commission's interpretation of the retaliation uh, provision in Title VII and particularly the participation uh, clause, uh, the compliance manual, uh, the commission's compliance manual uh, plainly defines participation as being limited to those actions that are taken in connection with testifying or otherwise being involved in proceedings, uh, legal proceedings under Title VII. Uh, I think it's hard to read the compliance manual provision as uh, providing coverage for participating in um, uh, internal investigations. Having said that, uh, I can only think of one reason why the court might be so interested in this uh, case, and that is that I think it must place great uh, value and, and interest on uh, encouraging employers to conduct informal internal investigations and reduce the need for formal legal action either before the commission or in court and be, or state administrative agencies. And uh, I think it's going to look for a way, in my view, to uh, permit that kind of conduct to be covered to ensure that the, uh, that the internal investigations of employers remain uh, active, viable alternatives to formal legal process. But we'll see. Um, the second case I want to talk about is the Humphreys against Cracker Barrel uh, West case. Here, um, the, uh, this case in, it calls for an interpretation of the, uh, one of the oldest civil rights uh, statutes, the uh, Civil Rights Act of, 19, of 1866, Section 1, uh, which uh, provides that um, uh, Per, uh, citizens have the same right uh, to make contracts and enforce contracts as white citizens. Um, and um, the Seventh Circuit there, uh, in a divided panel with Judge Easterbrook dissenting in relevant part, uh, reversed a, uh, uh, a summary uh, judgment determination, that is the panel, the 
the majority reversed the summary judgment determination, reinstating a uh, retaliation claim brought against Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel by an employee who was discharged after complaining about that another employee's discharge is allegedly racially motivated, um, and brought a claim both under Title VII and under the Civil Rights Act of 1866, Section 1981, as it's codified. Um, the district court dismissed on grounds that there was nothing in the language of Section 1981 that contemplated uh, protection against retaliation. And uh, uh, again, the SG uh, filed a brief, and uh, again, filed a brief in support of the uh, petitioner, that is the plaintiff's claim here, uh, arguing that the Seventh Circuit was correct in holding that the uh, uh, that the um, claim was cognizable under Section 1981. Um, among the grounds that were offered for affirmance, and this has been argued, I'll comment briefly on the argument in a moment, um, are that uh, I think perhaps the most persuasive is that uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 had several sections, one of which Section 1 uh, dealt with contracts. Section 2, uh, which is codified at 42 U.S.C. Section 1982, uh, guarantees to citizens the same rights to own and purchase and lease and sell, uh, or otherwise dispose of real and personal property. Um, those two sections are consistently and have been in long, long, long through long-standing precedent, but from the Supreme Court, interpreted in the same fashion. And uh, in the Sullivan against Little Hunting Park uh, decision in 1969, the court I think pretty plainly concluded that. Uh, Section 1982, um, the one dealing with property, uh, protects against retaliation. Um, and uh, it would be hard to interpret them in pari materia if uh, Section 1981 had no such protection. Uh, and I'll talk more about the argument in a moment, but I think that may have had some resonance with the critical votes on the court. Um, the second argument that's been offered, uh, particularly strongly, I think, by the SG, is that uh, a couple of years ago, uh, the court had the Jackson against Birmingham Board of Education case uh, where it considered and concluded that Title IX of uh, the Education Amendments of 1972, which protect against uh, sex discrimination uh, in uh, programs receiving federal assistance, um, uh, that that, uh, notwithstanding the fact the statute made no mention of retaliation, it nonetheless uh, protected against retaliation, and it cited the Sullivan case, the case that uh, interpreted the Section 1982, certainly suggesting that case in the court's mind has continued vitality. Yep, okay. Um, they also cite a host of reasons for affirming, uh, policy reasons for affirming that it's a good thing to have statutes uh, protect against retaliation or they will fall into disuse. Um, Another issue, of course, is that the, uh, um, is what happened to the Section 1981 as a result of the Civil Rights Act of 1981, uh, 1991, excuse me. And uh, there's questions there as to whether uh, whatever the law may have been before, in, in light of the uh, enactment by uh, Congress in 1991, expressly stating its intention to want the statute to have the broadest possible coverage of the employment relationship, that it's hard to see how this might not, this kind of conduct might not be protected. Briefly, uh, talking about the argument, um, there, uh, I think it's interesting that the justices, some, several justices, seem to seize on the, the plain language of the statute argument, that the uh, statute doesn't provide for retaliation, therefore 
uh, we're not going to read it into it. And some, uh, a justice uh, uh, made mention of the bad old days when they used to, in their view, uh, uh, find implied cause of action, which they uh, uh, claim to disavow doing anymore. Um, uh, the three justices who had descended in the Jackson case, the Title IX case, uh, were the most skeptical. The really interesting issue is that um, Justice Alito seemed to be responsive to uh, a concern about what you do about stare decisis if they were to find that uh, Section 1981 had no protection against retaliation. What does that do to the Sullivan case, to the interpretation of Section 1982? and to a string of decisions uh, that relied on Sullivan to, uh, to recognize there were protections against retaliation under Section 1981. Um, I think my bet is that Justice Alito may be the swing vote here, uh, and I don't know how he'll obviously how he'll come out, but I think it's interesting that he seemed to be, he was the one who was particularly moved by the issue of how do we deal with stare decisis in this setting. So we'll have to have a discussion in a couple of months to see how this all turns out. Uh, thanks a lot. Thanks to all the panel. Um, I'm going to just throw out a couple questions myself, and um, and then we'll uh, turn it over for uh, question and answer. Can everybody hear me? Um, you know, I wanted to see first of all if uh, any of the panelists has uh, a theory as to why the court seems uh, particularly interested in labor and employment cases right now. I'm not sure I have one. If you uh, look at the cases, they do seem to involve a, a variety of issues. There's not really one strong. Uh, strain among them. Um, uh, you know, one theory might be, I suppose, that this court uh, probably safely can be said to regard the U.S. Constitution as addressing fewer problems in life than past Supreme Courts have, and therefore maybe it's looking more at statutory issues. And if you look at the statutory issues in the lower courts, certainly, you know, the discrimination laws account for a large part of the lower courts' docket. So. Um, that might be one explanation as to why it happens. There are a lot of employment cases. But um, I'm curious if other panelists have thoughts on that or uh, maybe just think it's coincidence. You know, I, I think for a number of years, um, actually, the, the court, uh, as a percentage of its docket, has been granting an, uh, you know, a fair number of employment cases. Um, and when I say employment cases, I mean labor, traditional labor cases, employment cases, and, and ERISA cases. And I, I think it, it does have to do with uh, the degree to which the employment relationship uh, is not only so critical to the economy, but it's so heavily regulated. I mean, there are few areas, I think, in, in our economy that are subject to the same degree of regulation and oversight uh, as, as the employment relationship. And that, that might be one reason, but that's obviously just speculation. Um, I'll offer a second. I don't want this to be attributed to me. It's something I heard in the street. There are, <laughs> there are people who um, believe that the court is presently constituted, uh, regrets what uh, Joe called the bad old days when the court had much more expansive views about a lot of things, including the rights of employees, and that this is all part of a um, agenda, if you will, to revisit or at least stop the expansion of employee rights as a general matter, uh, that because there are all these old, very pro-employees decisions floating around, the lower courts feel obliged to follow them, and, uh, and those were all reflected a, a, an approach to judicial interpretation of statutes not in vogue with the current court 
and so some tailoring and trimming is in order. Well, you can tell that man on the street that my perspective as a management lawyer is if that's what the court's up to, it could do a much better job. <laughs> since it's decided, uh, I think, two of these cases so far this term, and uh, neither one was for the employer. Um, LaRue, uh, which was an ERISA case, that a uh, very important case, uh, decided, um, you, uh, um, uh, I think unanimously, actually, although on varying grounds, for the uh, participant in the plan, and then Sprint, which was a bit of a... Um, sort of split decision for the parties, but uh, was uh, favorable for the employer, but not the bright line rule that um, uh, some management lawyers had hoped for. Um, uh, uh, one last question um, for- Gene, uh, can I respond? Yeah. To the, uh, let, me, let me just add, I'm sorry to cut you off, but uh, I, I've heard this man on the street theory, and <laughs> let me, before, before today, and I, I think, let, let me, I want to make same one guy. point about this. Um, <laughs> well, from various people, actually. Uh, there is a theory, uh, it's, largely identical or perhaps a spin-off of what Mike said, which is that, that this is history repeating itself from the 1989 Supreme Court term. And just to, to, by way of background, Justice Kennedy came on the Supreme Court in 1987, and there was a, there was a view at that time uh, that finally there was this kind of right-wing majority on the court. Uh, and the 1989 term, uh, many people believe, was kind of the fruition of all these efforts by the Reagan administration to get their people on the Supreme Court. And after that term, when they granted a slew of labor and employment cases, the Betts case that I mentioned, they, the Wards Cove packing case, there were a whole bunch of decisions that came down in that term, uh, this kind of large grant of cert and the, the supposed conservative majority finally putting its stop to all this Warren Court and Burger Court activism and so forth. But that led to the Older Worker Benefit Protection Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1991, and many people have theorized uh, that what we're seeing is a repeat of history, that now we have Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts on the court, and we have kind of similar uh, goings-on in Congress. That is, any time this, this court issues a, a divided decision in favor of an employer, as the court did last term in the case of Ledbetter versus Goodyear, that this is, represents some kind of assault on employee rights, and this is just the start of this right-wing cabal on the court uh, undermining this expansive and generous view that they've had. I agree with Gene, I, I, I think in, in a sense in that I do agree that if this were such an assault on workers' rights, if this were such a, a, a reactionary group here led by the Chief Justice and Justice Alito, that they would be issuing different kinds of decisions. Uh, and I would point, in addition to the cases at Gene's side, the Burlington Northern decision, uh, a retaliation case that was up last term, uh, in which the court, now with Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts on it, uh, issued a decision uh, in which it overruled the Solicitor General, rejected the Solicitor General's uh, employer-friendly brief for the more generous standard articulated, or more generous to employee standard uh, articulated by the EEOC. And so I think that it, it may be the case that because we do have these two new justices that, that, that the, the simply the voting about the cert petitions is different now than it was before they were on the court. But I do not agree with the theory that there's some kind of you know, right-wing or pro-employer bent among this group. Now, that may look differently a year from now once we see how the court decides all these cases. Uh, but, but I think it's an interesting man-on-the-street theory that, uh, that history's in the making. We'll see how it plays out, though. And, and, and my man on the street tells me that it's simply their interest in creating more work for labor and employment lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That, that's, that's hard to disagree with. 
Um, well, why don't we uh, turn it open for questions? I've got one or two more of my own, but I, I'll defer to others now and, and see if um, we, have, we do have a microphone here, uh, too, but if you want to raise your hand. And, um, you know, I, uh, Mike, I, I did want to ask you um, if you uh, had thoughts on a point that Willis was making. Willis was suggesting in connection with the Penn Plaza case that um, it might be that the unions would uh, side uh, with the uh, employer in that case. Um, of course, the, the union uh, that has the contract w with the employer in the case had agreed to the provision. Um, but one also could argue that the union movement as a whole might actually uh, benefit if employers that um, did have labor unions were not subject to the same degree of federal regulation as unions that did not. And you know, I've written about this a little bit, but the argument would be that unionization is, can be perceived as a little bit of an alternative way of uh, protecting employee rights. And you know, one way you'd have direct federal re regulation and uh, employees' direct ability to go to court. Um, but uh, another way to get there is employees band together, form a union, and set up a grievance mechanism. They can monitor safety conditions in the workplace a bit themselves, et cetera. So I'm curious if you think that it might actually uh, help the union movement if the court were to overrule uh, Alexander v. Gardner Denver. Well, I, I, I mean, I think the answer is no, and let me say why. Um, the, the labor movement in Gardner Denver uh, supported the position that the Supreme Court adopted that we, the unions, don't own this procedure. Uh, I think labor unions do, certainly many unions who are very supportive of um, the victims of discrimination, uh, do want to provide assistance to employees, and providing the arbitration process as an option is one that I think unions would favor. So that, for example, a collective bargaining agreement that said that um, employees, if they wish, can pursue their statutory claims through the grievance procedure and arbitration, uh, rather than going to court, uh, is something labor movements would applaud. And it could provide either they can do it on their own right or the union will provide them an assistance in doing it, as the case might be. But I think unions would be, most unions would be very, and I'm remembering back to when I represented them, and granted some years have gone by, um, most unions would be very reluctant to say that we own these statutory rights. That. Um, the consequences of that in terms of what the courts would then elaborate as the union's obligations in exercising this ownership would be troubling. Uh, they would feel compelled to pursue every case to arbitration even if they thought it didn't have merit lest they be vulnerable to claims that they didn't uh, adequately treat it. And, and I think that it would not surprise me if the labor movement files an amicus brief, the FLCIO in this case, uh, though I have no inside information about this. Uh, uh, opposing uh, the quest to, to uh, uphold this collective bargaining agreement. Um, and uh, yes, it's true that there might be cynical unions who say this is a really good deal because it's something we can give the employer in collective bargaining in return for things that we really want. But I doubt that the labor movement as a whole would take that position. You know, I mean, my reaction to that is is slightly different. I, I think that, first of all, I think that the the unions would have an interest in owning the collective bargaining process, um, and that is that they would, and I think do believe that uh, together with employers, they ought to have pretty broad rights to negotiate within the bounds of law, uh, whatever is in the interests of whatever that particular bargaining unit is. And, and and it would seem to me that if I were on the union side 
uh, I'd, I'd be wanting to protect that process. And I'd, I'd look back to uh, the Wright case and say, look, you know, we were the employer. We looked at what the law was, and we drafted a contract that we thought was absolutely consistent with that. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, so I think that that's one point. I think the other point is that to the extent, considerable extent, that the, the union movement is losing speed um, generally, it's due in part to the fact that the plaintiff's bar has been able to, um, in effect, co-opt a lot of the issues that were formerly union issues. Uh, and this would be yet another one. Um, you know, this, this would be, you know, a situation where if, if unions and employers can't agree that statutory claims would be uh, subject to arbitration, that just opens the door uh, to, uh, you know, employers, in effect, to argue, you know, what do you need a union for? I mean, they can't even process a, a discrimination claim. You know, there, there are, uh, you know, lawyers across the street who can do it. So I, I, I think that it's a, actually a very complicated issue uh, from an institutional perspective, a union institutional perspective. I certainly don't pretend to have any insight into that. But, um, I, you know, I, I can actually see, I can, I don't know what the AFL-CIO is going to do, but I can see local 32B and J being on the side of the employer in this, in, in this case. It really is their process that's at risk. Question here. Uh, yes. Um, it's been almost 20 years since the Supreme Court has uh, taken up the relationship of non-members to, uh, in any great, to any great degree, uh, with uh, labor unions in Keller, uh, which was a state bar case, and um, of course Leonard. Um, now we see Davenport last term, and next term we've got uh, Locke and Karras and the. Uh, Ysursa case from Idaho, uh, I'd, I'd be interested in the panel's uh, views on what explains this renewed interest, if anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I was noticing the same. I mean, the court does seem to be showing uh, more interest in um, uh, union dues in particular. And uh, what you might say is that even the Penn Plaza case, that is the uh, arbitration case we've been discussing, uh, concerns a related issue, which is the um, union's relationship to its members. Um, uh, but um, you know, beyond that, I, you know, I, I don't know if there's something in particular driving it. But th there, it does seem that maybe there's a justice or two who's particularly interested in the union's relationship with their members, and and obviously with the dues collection aspect of it, um, a particularly great interest. I don't know if others have observations on that. You know, again, from the, the management lawyer perspective and the traditional labor law perspective, I, I find it interesting because um, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, especially in heavily organized industries, the issue of what unions do with dues or how they collect dues or how much the dues are from the management perspective is of zero interest um, as a practical uh, so, I, you know, I think to the extent that, that these are, are issues that have caught, I think it is what you said, Gene, that a justice must have a particular interest in this because um, I don't see any other reason why the, I mean, I was surprised at this Idaho grant, to tell you the truth. I mean, it involves, you know, public sector employers, it, uh, you know, there are interesting aspects to it, like any case that the court grants on it, but it, it does seem like a fairly small issue. Yeah, and I'm with Willis. You know, it is an issue that management lawyers tend not to pay that much attention to. 
Um, but the Department of Labor in the last seven years has paid a fair amount of attention to uh, unions dues collection union activity. And maybe that has caught the attention of um, the, the court and uh, made them want to look more closely as well. Might be another explanation. Um, why don't we take one last question from uh, Ray. Ray Lajeunesse, uh, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. I, I found Here, your here's comment. The, here's the real answer. <laughs> very interesting, Mr. Gottesman, because we may find the AFL-CIO and uh, National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation filing on the same side in the arbitration case, because I see it particularly problematical for a union to be able to waive the statutory rights of non-members they represent as monopoly bargaining agents. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a very important question. And, um, uh, and as I said, I think a really interesting and, and actually quite difficult one. Uh, and you know, if you, if you look at union representation as a collective undertaking. Well, um, first of all, let me, uh, let me again thank the uh, panelists, um, uh, Joe and Mike and Willis and Eric, um, for agreeing to do this. I really couldn't have asked for um, a more distinguished group of labor and employment lawyers to um, join us today. And again, thank, thank all of you. And, uh, <laughs>